Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Teaching Topeka, the Capital Journal's podcast on all things education. I'm Rafael Garcia, education reporter for the Capital Journal. Joining us today on Teaching Topeka is Ann Ma, the Kansas State Board of Education representative for District 4, which covers Shawnee, Jefferson, and Osage counties, as well as parts of Wabansee, Potawatomi, and Douglas counties. She has served in that role for the past four years, although her experience with education dates back to the beginning of her career, when she was a public school teacher for five and a half years in Emporia and Chase County Public Schools. Anne, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Raphael. It's good to be here. Neat. Well, Anne, I keep thinking back to March, when school shut down in, for in-person operations for the rest of the spring semester, and back to August, when there seemed to be a lot of unease and uncertainty mm-hmm. about what the fall semester would actually look like. It seemed that school leaders were in uh, hope for the best, but prepare for the worst kind of scenario. Um, from your perspective as a state school board of, or state school board representative, how did the first semester actually play out? Well, you know, nobody was prepared for what we ran into last spring. Um, And so the spring semester was really all about grace. Um, But the fall semester, we knew that we had to bring rigor back to education. And so um, a lot of folks were, were... you know, working through a roller coaster, really. A lot of districts brought their teachers back in early. Some of them used all their professional development days before school started so teachers could prepare for what might happen if they had to move and had to pivot, you know, on a day's notice from remote to hybrid to in-person teaching. They needed to be prepared for all of that. So I think the districts prepared as well as they could. Um, The federal government and the state um, put a little extra money in to help them. I know a lot of folks will say, well, gosh, they're not in school. You know, we're not having school, so it must be cheaper. No, it's not cheaper. It's way more expensive to do what you have to do when you're teaching in several different modes at once. Um, and so it's it's been a roller coaster ride this uh, fall at, still, even though I'd say I'm thinking the number is about 80% of the, of the districts. Now, that's not 80% of the students, but 80% of the districts actually were able to go back uh, full-time in person. Um, and even some of them then wound up having to go remote. But the bigger, more urban districts simply were not able to safely, what, what I mean by safely is to properly distance and sanitize and and uh, all that to bring kids back full-time. I think what uh, 501 did here in bringing back elementary students full-time was was amazing. I know Dr. Anderson and her team worked really hard to try to find a way to do that safely. And even then, you know, right before Christmas, they had to, you know, go remote again because um, staff was gone. Uh, A big part of what happened uh, that kept... uh, 
kids and teachers out of school this fall was the 14-day quarantine rule. You know, the teachers weren't in elementary schools in particular. We know they weren't getting COVID from kids. We know that. But if somebody at home had been exposed and they had to stay home, then it really cut the staff down. Um, But I think everybody learned something from this fall. And I think, um, boy, we laid a lot on teachers' shoulders this fall to try to bring the rigor back and teach kids the standards and, and and make things as, you know, quote, normal as they could. Mm-hmm. Now, and District 4 isn't necessarily the largest district um, in terms of geographic size here in Kansas, but I know that it does cover a, a <laughs> wide variety of kinds of districts, or kinds does. of schools, um, from 501, <laughs> which is one of the biggest and most diverse districts here in mm-hmm. Kansas, to, I don't know, smaller districts, like here just in Shawnee County, Silver Lake. Right. What are some differences in the ways... Or challenges that these districts have seen as part of the pandemic. Um, what are things you've heard from those districts? Well, um, I, there were a number of challenges, and as you said, it varied. Um, you know, a small district like Silver Lake that only has, you know, I think, about five percent kids living in poverty didn't have the struggle with technology that 501 did. They had a little different struggle because out in the rural areas, you might not even have, you know, Wi-Fi or Internet available out in the farmhouses or out in the rural areas. In 501, they had, I think the number was about 8,000 students who needed Internet at home and were, you know, living in poverty. And so they had to go find a lot of money, uh, which fortunately came in through the CARES Act and uh, SPARC here in, ta- in, uh, in the county to uh, provide Internet service and devices for all their kids. So technology, getting uh, technology to every home was a big challenge. Getting the sanitizing equipment in place, you know, the uh, a lot of them, uh, some schools did the facial temperature things. You know, you have to have that in place. They needed PPE and a lot of it, uh, sanitizing equipment, um, and staffing. Staffing's been a challenge with those 14-day quarantines wiping out whole schools or grade levels, along with the shortage of substitutes because, you know, there are a lot of folks who substitute. I used to do it, you know, were retirees, essentially, and uh, didn't you know, want to take the chance on getting COVID. So there's a shortage of substitutes. Um, But perhaps the biggest challenge has been dealing with the social emotional issues that have come along with COVID that face not only students, but the faculty and the families, the things that they're dealing with. I mean, remote learning, it's it's just hard on everybody. The isolation, the disruption to family, you know, parents now becoming teachers and not knowing the technology or what to do. Um, feeding kids, another huge issue. Um, in 501, uh, for example, where you know more than 70% of the kids are on free and reduced lunch, they had to find a way to deliver that food home. It's just that the logistics of it alone was immense. Um, and I give kudos to all the schools around here for, for how they were able to do that. Um, you know, it's just a long list, trying to deliver quality education remotely. It's tough. And I really have to hand it to teachers and administrators who are just working their behinds off to to try to make that happen for our kids. Mm-hmm. I think one thing we've all learned this year is that schools do a lot more than just that education piece. Um, they provide meals. They provide at-home support. They check in on families when they're struggling. Mm-hmm. Um, but focusing in on that education piece, have there been any sort of fears that um, 
as a result of all of these setbacks in education that children might be falling behind academically? Well, I think there's no doubt that that children are falling behind. Um, You know, we know that remote learning is not a great way to teach kids, that the best way to learn is with in person with a teacher. Uh, But again, that varies, you know, from district to district. We know from testing and from anecdotally that um, if you look at K-12, the kids who fell behind the furthest, who lost the most from last spring to this fall, were the youngest ones, K through 3. We saw a huge drop-off there. And as the kids got older, not so much, which, you know, makes sense, I guess, in that the older kids were able to deal with the remote learning and the technology better and were able to do more on their own, if you will. But even at that, uh, we know last spring some kids, older kids, high school kids, just dropped out. You know, they just stopped coming. And so we've got a lot of work to do um, at all levels to catch up. And uh, that's something that's going to be on everybody's mind. Now, fortunately, um, the most recent CARES Act that just passed is sending about $300 million to Kansas schools, which they'll be able to use um, with summer school and tutoring and other things to try to help get these kids back on track. Mm -hmm. Now, that phrase, back on track or Mm -hmm. falling behind, does it take on a different meaning if everybody's facing some of these struggles or is it? the case that maybe not everybody's facing the same struggles, um, who would be at risk for falling behind in this pandemic? Well, I I think there's no doubt that that, uh, students in poverty are the ones we really have to be paying attention to because they're less likely to have, you know, a parent at home during the day and uh, less likely to have um, access to technology or have uh, adults in the home who can be there with them who understand the technology. So, I'm definitely thinking that our our kids, our at-risk kids, um, are ones we're really going to have to pay some close attention to. In fact, all along, we've been encouraging schools, even if they were in the red zone, if you will, for COVID, um, if kids are not attending, to bring them in in person. Because you can bring in small groups of, of kids, you know, 10 or less. Um, at any time and not violate any any health rules. So we're hoping that schools are really um, trying to find kids who aren't showing up, and if they're not, make them come in now and not wait till next summer to to try to uh, rehab things. Mm -hmm. Now, as part of the way that um, school districts operate, they work within some pretty tight frame rules and Mm -hmm. um, policies set by the state board or by the um, state legislature. Um, is there anything that state board or um, the state house might be able to do to ease things up for school districts or to help them out? Um, yeah, you know, there are a number of things that can be done. Uh, not all of it can be done by the state board of education because our authority over schools is limited. I know a lot of parents write and go, you know, my kid needs to be back in school. Make make them go back. We have no authority to tell the schools what mode they're going to be in. Um, But what we could do uh, and what we did do was last summer we had a group of over 900 educators sit down and go through our standards and uh, condense those into competencies. So what we were doing was encouraging teachers knowing they could not possibly teach everything that they would in a regular school year with kids right in front of them to focus on just the most essential standards. Um, And uh, 
so that the kids could stay on track with where they needed to be at their grade level. Now, what we do not have the authority to do is cancel those state tests, and right now they're still on, which is going to be kind of an issue. Um, we don't know what the new administration will do, but that's a federal requirement that we do the testing. And um, so uh, depending on what happens with the Biden administration, um, we'll know whether or not we have to do those uh, state tests. But we have been encouraging districts to use what we call our interim tests throughout the year. We have a shorter version of our math and English tests that, that teachers can use to kind of assess where kids are when they go along. Um, you know, last spring, we just uh, were able at the legislature's um, because the legislature wrote a, a new law about it, reduce the number of hours that are required. That is in statutes. Again, that's not something that the state can change, uh, the state board can change. But what we did was uh, we could uh, with use some wiggle room. Uh, we just last month uh, passed a resolution to allow the districts to take up to 20 hours this spring and not have class but have teachers come in for professional development, give them a little uh, breathing room. But there's a whole host of regulations that we've backed off on, um, and we even allowed districts this year to, if, if where they were in their accreditation, to kind of t uh, push their accreditation out a year so they don't have to worry about somebody coming in and visiting this year and, you know, all those kinds of things. So we've been looking for some ways to relax uh, things and give them some breathing room because the administrators and teachers are just under immense pressure. Anybody you go to talk to, that's the one thing they bring up. They can't believe how stressed out everybody is knowing they want to deliver the best and they're just not able to do it right now. Mm -hmm. The thing I love about the education bee is that everybody has experience with it. Mm -hmm. um, everybody's been through <laughs> some true. sort of school system <laughs> at have. some point. <laughs> but I think a thing we've also learned this past year is that everybody has an opinion on education. Um, Absolutely. As people start paying more attention to the state school board, mm -hmm. um, which maybe they possibly overlooked in the past, right. what's something you wish they knew or understood about the school state school board and what it does, what its mission is, or how it might differ from local school districts. Well, you know, the state board uh, races, as as you mentioned, are ones that are often overlooked. I think we realized in the '90s when the state board of education became national news um, that this is something we need to pay attention to, and we just don't. Um, I wish people would reach out more. I do. I have a website, and I do an, a, a newsletter at least once a month to parents, and I do one to superintendents and teachers as well, try to let them know what I'm up to. And, uh, of course, we, we got a lot more notoriety this summer <laughs> when uh, we were made to vote on uh, an executive order that the, that the uh, governor put out. So now, all of a sudden, we're very well known. But that will fade um, but I just really encourage people all across the state to find out who your state board of education member is. You can go to the ksde.org website and find out who your board member is and communicate with them because um, every two years, half the board is up for election. 
And uh, in 2022, five more people are going to be up for election. And we could easily slip from a board, which right now I think is really good, very focused, a lot of professional people on there who are going to do the right things for kids. But we could really easily slip into a board that was not that focused or had an agenda that was really not pro-public education. So I, I really wish people would pay attention to what the state board is doing, ask questions. We, we can handle it. Mm-hmm. Now, if I'm correct, Next week is the start of a new board term, right? right? Mm -hmm. Um, What are some priorities you maybe see for the board um, right now and throughout the next couple of years? Well, of course, uh, the big, you know, grill in the room is getting through this COVID year and then trying to help schools navigate uh, what comes next. Um, But we have a, a lot of initiatives that we're working on. The number one thing is redesign. We have more than 70 school districts and more than 160 buildings involved in redesigning how kids learn uh, for the 21st century. It's very exciting stuff uh, focused on individualized learning, uh, project-based, what we call real-world learning, and uh, that's just going great. In fact, the schools um, that were in the redesign process found out that they were able to manage the COVID era much better than than schools who didn't because they were already individualized learning, already had some curriculum up on online. And so for them to move um, into the COVID world was was really uh, much easier. Um, One of the biggest issues that districts face that we're trying to help with is mental health. I don't think a lot of people realize that uh, public schools are the biggest mental health providers of children in the state. And right now with COVID, particularly kids are dealing with things, but we've had uh, ongoing the last couple of years an initiative to reduce bullying and attack you know, bullying in schools uh, head on. Um, and we've just uh, proved some um, pr- uh, resources and things for schools to use to help with that. Suicide prevention is another big issue that we're working on. Um, getting technology out. And of course, the legislature is going to be back in town. And so we just set our legislative priorities. Um, I have a personal concern that with the shift we saw back in November, that the leadership in the House and Senate is not going to be as public school friendly as we've seen the last couple years. Um, I think uh, public school funding might be in jeopardy. I think there will also be a push to take public monies and um, and use them for private or even home schools, so with vouchers or one way or another. So we'll see how that goes. Um, and uh, they can come back next week, so we won't have to wait too long. Yeah. Um, in addition to some of those issues you mentioned, like – mental health Mm -hmm. um, or bullying prevention. What do you see as the board's most pressing issues this year beyond just COVID? Well, we really have to um, press schools, I think, to provide that quality education. We're very concerned about what's happening to kids academically and social, as well as social-emotional. So we're really going to have to work with the schools to help get them the resources they need to make sure every child does succeed. It's just more important now than ever. We may be years trying to catch up in some districts. Mm -hmm. What role does the state school board play in maybe holding those local districts to account for some of those standards? Well, the biggest thing is accreditation. 
Um, that is um, something we're very serious about. In fact, we surprised a couple districts this year by giving them a conditional accreditation, which hadn't happened in a long time. But I think districts have the, got the message now that we are very serious about um, the initiatives that we have, kindergarten readiness, you know, graduation rates, making sure kids are prepared to go on after high school. Um, so we're very serious about that, holding their feet to the fire. But we also go out and get resources. I mean, we spend a lot of time um, at the Capitol fighting for more money. We prepare a budget that we take to the legislature. And um, we go over there and fight for that. And we, I think, helped play a big role in the increased funding that we saw a couple years ago. They actually used our recommendations and um, very pleased with that. We just want to make sure we don't go backwards this year in funding because we're going to need the money more than ever. Mm -hmm. Now, finally, with education just constantly in the news mm -hmm. nowadays, what do you wish people just knew about education in Kansas in general? Well, I think they, they need to know that our public schools are some of the best in the nation, and our staff and our teachers are, are folks that we couldn't be more proud of. Um, you know, everybody says um, one of their best memories, if you ask people, they'll probably be a teacher. And yet, they turn around and criticize them, you know, and criticize the schools. But we have some of the best schools in the nation, and I think people should recognize that and should thank a teacher when they see one. All right. Well, as we mentioned, the Kansas State Board of Education next meets January 12th and 13th, and we'll have coverage of any changes or updates to um, Kansas's K-12 education experience. You can find that coverage online at cjonline.com and, of course, in our daily print editions. Uh, and thanks again for joining us. And um, mm -hmm. for the Capitol Journal's Teaching Topeka podcast, this has been Rafael Garcia.